Amen. Amen. You be seated. Thank you, worship team. Aren't you thankful that the Lord never lets go of us? Amen. Praise God for that. Thank you, team, for leading us. Good morning again, everybody. I'm glad to have you with us. Um, uh, thankful for the opportunity we have to now continue in our worship through, uh, through giving, but also through uh, the study of the Word. As always, I'd like to mention here, uh, if you do want to uh, continue to give towards the mission of Holmes Avenue, uh, you can do so by uh, the graphic that uh, you should see on the screen. There you go. Uh, you can text to give. You can give at holmesavenue.com forward slash give, or you can scan the QR code or drop off if you're here at the offering plates as you exit <clears throat> this morning. Uh, but if this is your first time with us, or first time in a while, uh, we have been journeying through the book of Acts for quite some time now, since August. And uh, in doing so, uh, we are at uh, the end of our uh, third mini-series entitled Faith Persecuted. And as Debbie just prayed a moment ago, we're, we're looking at this last bit of the example of Stephen. And you may remember back from several weeks ago when we started chapter 6, we looked at those first seven verses and we saw how seven were chosen to serve. And one of those that were chosen to serve, the first name that is mentioned is Stephen. And over the last few weeks, besides last week, which by the way, wasn't it great having Dr. Nate Johnson with us last Sunday? Phenomenal message. Uh, Nate, I, I, I know that you, you say you watch this, brother. Thank you again for doing that for us this past week. Um, but uh, a great message from him. I'm, I'm excited about what God is prayerfully going to do uh, through Charleston Bilingual with us as we continue to seek the Lord's face and, and, and follow his direction on those things. Um, but we, the last couple weeks prior to that, we, we saw this example of Stephen as he's giving a defense before the council. And he's describing, as Pastor Walter talked about a few weeks ago, that, that spiritual heritage that the, the nation of Israel has and then also in that moment, as we talked about two weeks ago, we concluded that defense, and Stephen is, is calling, uh, putting everything out before them, letting them know, hey, this is your history, this is what God has done, and this is what you have done. Not done something in a response of obedience, however, you, on the other hand, have killed the Messiah. And it's now brought us to this point of where we are today and I've entitled today's message, The Transforming Power of the Gospel. The Transforming Power of the Gospel, because we see how the Gospel has transformed Stephen with his defense and proclamation of the Gospel. We see how the proclamation of the Gospel, or how the Gospel itself, excuse me, has empowered through the Holy Spirit, has transformed the early church, the apostles, as we've journeyed all throughout Acts to see how they respond to things and so today we're looking at this example of the transforming power of the gospel and how Stephen, we get this last excerpt of, of his life. Because today we're going to see that Stephen is the first martyr for the sake of Jesus. Stephen is killed by the same ones that he's laying the gospel out to. And we're going to see Stephen's response, even in the midst of being killed by stoning, is one of transforming power that only the gospel can give to a person. So with that said, this is a short passage. Let's stand together and honor the reading of God's word as we finish out chapter seven and begin just the very first half of verse one from chapter eight. The word of God says, verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we have honored you with our lips this morning in song, praising your name, lifting you on high. And Lord, now as we look at your word, I pray, God, that you would speak. Lord, that you would go before right now. Holy Spirit, do a powerful work during this time in person, online, for those that are watching us, somebody that may listen to this down the road at some point. Lord, I pray that you would have your way. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. We love you and we bless you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Have a seat. In this passage today, we're going to see how Stephen's life shows us just that transforming power of the gospel and how it empowers believers to stand firm and live countercultural even while facing persecution. So I've only got two points for you today, and yes, you will probably get out of here somewhat early. You can thank the Lord and thank me later. But we are going to look at this first point. I hope you're taking notes. First point is this. Number one, stay rooted in the gospel. Stay rooted in the gospel. 54 again says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. We see here in verse 54 that you cannot miss what's happening here. Stephen has just laid out, as I said, their spiritual identity. He's called the sin before what they have done by killing Jesus, killing the Messiah, and they become angry at hearing these words. They have been confronted with their sin, and they become angry. Now, we can easily read this and be like, how dare they? Who are they to do this? But we have to remember, we're on this side of the cross. We have the entire word of God before us. It's hard to stop and say, how dare they, when we have to ask the question, when we are confronted with our sin, do we get angry? It's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it. If, if a brother and sister in Christ that is obediently following the Lord sees that there's sin in our life and they call us out for that sin, does it get us angry when we face the sin that we have caused? Miranda cannot respond, but yes, I get like that. <laughs> Just being transparent. We all, we all face that reality. These people are being confronted with their sin. And here's the fact. When the truth of God's word illuminates our sin, it puts it before us. When we're called out for it, we get angry. But here's the, th the fact. If you are in Christ, you will hopefully be remorseful and repent. Hopefully. Prayerfully, these people are enraged at Stephen's word. They ground their teeth at him, as verse 54 says. In other words, it's this, this gnashing of teeth. They get so frustrated that they're grinding their teeth. You ever been that mad? They're just so enraged by what they've been told. But you have to remember, their sin has been called out. And they're frustrated by what's been said 
of them and to them. Read with me 55 and 56. Referring to Stephen, Luke writes, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens have opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Understand, church, what we are reading here. Stephen has all these enraged people coming at him. You can picture the scene in your mind. If you ever have seen that show AD, they remember they had the little show AD that was on ABC or something for a period of time. They were, they were trying to do these biblical accounts and they were trying to keep it as close as they could to the word. But every time I think of this passage or I read it, that image comes to my mind because there was an episode of the stoning of Stephen. But in this moment, I, I, I'm picturing it. You can see it all happen. These people are enraged and they're charging at Stephen. They are ready to pounce. They are frustrated and they are angry for what's been said of them and to them. But Scripture says that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit as he gazes into heaven. He, he fixates his eyes upward to the Lord. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I love, I love how Luke divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, points out that he is full of the Holy Spirit. Now we know, we know, I just referenced a few moments ago the beginning of Acts 6 where we, we saw the seven that are called out, that are chosen. And we know from that that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'll read it to you. It says in the first part of verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Why then should we pay attention to what Luke is saying to us here? Why again do we have to pay attention to the fact that Luke is telling us again that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit? Well, here's the facts. Whenever we are in tune with God, we are in tune with the Holy Spirit, whenever we are walking in obedience to God, is it not easier for us to ignore the distractions of this world? When we're walking in tune with the Spirit and we're walking in obedience to God and we have our eyes fixated on the one who created us, who redeemed us, and who has called us to walk in obedience, as our eyes are fixated on him, when the attacks of the world come at us, it's a lot easier for us to keep our eyes fixated on the one who died for us rather than the things that are going on around us. Now, when we have our eyes not fixated on Jesus, when we are not walking in obedience, when we are not in tune with the Holy Spirit of God, you better believe that we get distracted, do we not? Things come our way. This is difficult season of life. I've got to focus on this. This is a financial hardship. I've got to focus on this. I have this sin in my life. It's just engulfed me. We're all fixated on, fixated on those things rather than the one who has redeemed us and who has called us to walk in obedience. So, of course, we're going to get our eyes fixated on other things. But Stephen, in this moment, with the people that are charging at him, that are literally about to kill him with stones over and over and over, he fixates his eyes on God, despite what's charging at him. What an image that is. Now, Stephen sits there, and when he says that, he says that he sees the Son of Man standing what is interesting about that is this. We see nowhere else in the New Testament the word son of man used outside of the Gospels. This is Acts. This is not part of the four Gospels. 
Here, he is proclaiming that he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen uses the specific proclamation of the reality of what is happening, that this is exactly what Jesus said would take place, the Son of Man at the right hand of God. In Mark 14, 62, Jesus himself says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand and power coming with the clouds of heaven. This, of course, is pointing to the day of Jesus' return. I said it last night to a brother pastor, and I'll say it even now, based on the way the world is today, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. We see some similarities. I talked about it several weeks ago with the Christ-like message. We see several similarities between Stephen and the Lord that he is defending. We see these moments of, of him standing before a council. Jesus himself stood before a council. He was tried for blasphemy, and I'm going to put it in quotes because it wasn't blasphemy what Jesus was doing. He's God in the flesh proclaiming the reality of what the people are doing. Jesus is tried for blasphemy, and he's ultimately found guilty, although he is sinless. Stephen himself finds himself in the same boat, being called out for blasphemy for the things that he's saying, when all he's doing is defending the Messiah who was promised to come, who came and who died for the sins of the people who were charging at Stephen. Who came and died for the sins of the people that hung Jesus on the cross. Going back to what Stephen said about the Son of Man, he says something different than what Jesus said in Mark 14. In Mark 14, again, Jesus said that you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. In this passage here, Stephen says that Jesus is standing. He sees the clouds of open. He sees the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now you look at that and you're like, man, so what, what's the difference there? Why? And I, I had to ask the question myself as I'm studying. I'm like, I, I don't understand. Why is Jesus doing this? And most scholars, they, they differ. I won't say most. Some scholars differ. There's a couple of different opinions. But most point to this reality. This image of Jesus standing at the right hand of God is this image of witnessing what Stephen is doing for him. Standing, oh, standing to his feet. And watching what Stephen is doing on his behalf as an advocate to the Father. Father, look what he's doing. Look what he's doing. Which reminds us of the reality of Jesus' words in 12.8 of Luke. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. I'm emotional, no biggie, right? No surprise there. Thank you, honey. But I, I read this, and I see this image that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, acknowledging what is happening here with Stephen. 
And if I'm honest, it makes me want to fall to my knees. It's made me want to fall to my knees in repentance. It's made me want to fall to my knees in prayer and cry out to God and ask him that we would all do the same thing. It's made me ask myself the question, if I was put in a situation like Stephen, facing death, would I respond in the same way? And I would gladly stand before you and say, oh, yes, I would. And I pray to God that I would. But the mere fact that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, showing that he is our advocate, showing that he is witnessing us and the opportunities that we're given to acknowledge him before others. Man, that's just an awing moment. It's a humbling moment to know that we have been redeemed and saved despite our sin and shame. You may read this and think, oh man, I, I've never been in a situation where I've had to give a defense and I look up and the skies are open and Jesus is there. The reality is you, you, you're probably not going to have a moment like that. I don't know what God may do, but I do know this. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. The God we serve is omniscient. He is everywhere. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us, and he will be with us always until the end of the age. Therefore, brother and sister, when you are in a moment where you are giving a defense of the gospel, take heart. Do not give in to fear. Trust God and walk in obedience. You may not be facing death. You may be facing the loss of a job. You may be facing being ostracized from any person that you are trying to build a relationship with them and say, I don't want anything to do with you. Your neighbor may say, man, you're crazy. Leave me alone. The co-worker in the cubicle next to you may say, man, I don't want to hear none of that junk. Leading to a very awkward relationship. But I encourage you, be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and walk in obedience and be bold when given the opportunity. Here's the reality, church. Look around. Literally, look around. Prayerfully, God will continue to empower his church and we will see more and more people come in here and be a part of this family and this church will grow and all of our sister churches will grow and we'll see it an amazing revival, an amazing awakening of souls. But in order for that to take place, God's church has got to be on mission. God's church has got to be on mission every single day. I love the reality that, that, that God is possibly going to bring a school here and we're going to have that. And Sunday to Sunday, there's going to be things happening on this campus. That there's going to be life breathed in here Sunday to Sunday. But as a church, if we are only gathering at the appointed time and that's the only kind of mission time that we have, we can't stop and say, man, where are the people? We can't stop and say, man, what's going on? We have got to be everyday missionaries. 
A missionary is not reserved for the title of James and Ashley Wing serving in Puerto Rico. A missionary is not reserved for Pastor Brian, Pastor Walter, Deacon so-and-so. An everyday missionary is every single one of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who encountered people who are lost and separated from God, that we love and care for, that are going to die separated from God for eternity in hell. We must be the church on mission every day of our lives, and we must welcome, this is going to sound weird, we must welcome opposition. And we must welcome difficult conversations. And we must welcome the reality of, man, I am terrified to go into a conversation because I don't know what is going to happen when this conversation starts. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Have no fear, I will give you the words to speak. If you go into any kind of engaging conversation with anybody that's lost and you think, I don't have the words to say, get on your knees and say, God, I truly don't have the words to say, but your Holy Spirit empowers me and it is inside of me and you have promised me that you will give me the words to speak. So have your way in this conversation and empower me and move. We've got to be stay rooted in the gospel. We've got to stay rooted in it. We've got to continually, every day of our lives, before we even go out into that daily mission field that God has called us to, we've got to engage the word of God and grow and be transformed by the word of God. That is how we stay rooted in the gospel. We remind ourselves every day, God, you have put breath in my lungs. You have redeemed me. You have saved me. You have promised me eternal life with you. So while I'm here until I'm with you in glory, use me, teach me through your word, speak to me through this living and active transformative word. And if there's things that you need to use that sharper than two-edged sword, the word of God to cut through, to bring me to my knees, then so be it. Whatever you need and you want and you desire for me, I give it all to you and I say speak. Stay rooted in the gospel. Stay rooted in the word of God. Encounter God every day of your life. Pray to God and walk in obedience. Secondly, the gospel is countercultural, even in persecution. The gospel is countercultural, even in persecution. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. You read that and you automatically get the picture in your head if you're like me, I think we all would kind of get the image in our head. We read 57, they cry out with a loud voice and they stop their ears and they rush at him. Ever remind you of anything? Remind you of a child? Those of you that have kids or grandkids or you've been around a kid, you've seen those moments where the temper tantrum comes. Now my kids don't do that. That's a total joke. I gotta be careful because my mom's here and my mom will say the same thing I did when I was a kid. But you get those moments where you stop your ears and you see a child do that and they're like, I don't wanna hear this and they just start screaming and wailing and going about. Here again, they're enraged. They stop their ears because they don't wanna hear anymore. They don't wanna hear the reality of their sin. They stop their ears, they cry out loud and they rush at him. 58 
The first part. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. You see, by casting him out of the city, they, and I'm going to put this in quotes too, they attempted to be obedient. Here's what I mean. You may remember this from when we went through Leviticus earlier this year, but in Leviticus 24, 14 through 16, it says, Bring out of the camp the one who, is cur- who cursed, and let all who heard them lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Now you may hear that. You may read it there on the screen, read it in your Bibles, and you say, well, well pastor, they're, they're doing what they think is right. The reality is they're not doing what's right at all. They're not truly following God's law. We just read a moment ago that they're brought to anger. They're brought to anger when they're faced with their sin. I think we can all agree anytime that we are angry in our lives, and if anybody here says they've never gotten angry, we gotta talk afterwards because I gotta know how to do it. We've all gotten angry. We've all lashed out. We're all sinners that have been redeemed by God, those of us who are in Christ. We've all had those moments where we get angry and we respond in anger. They are doing that here. They are responding in anger because of their being confronted with their sin. They weren't angry because they truly believed that Stephen was a blasphemer. Besides the fact that he's not. He's literally, you think about this in the the process of which Luke has written it for us. He's saying these, they're saying these things, they take him out of the place to stone him just before they put him out of the city to stone him, to follow the law. He's literally just said, he looks up and he sees God. He sees Jesus at his right hand. And yet they're still calling him a name. He hasn't even blasphemed the name of God. But yet they're so frustrated, they're so angry, they cast him out to stone him. Second part of 58 says, And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. To carry out the stoning, to, to, to attempt to be obedient, they take off their outer garments and they lay them there at the feet of this young man named Saul. Saul was there to serve as this coat checker standing by. He did not partake in the stoning, but he didn't do anything to stop it. He's approving of what is taking place. We know from just a few verses into chapter 8 that we'll study after the new year, after we get through our Christmas series in the Christmas season, Saul was very much against the church. We get into, we get into chapter 8, and he's, he's very much an enemy of the church. He's a persecutor of the church. This is the first picture that we see of Saul. Of Saul. Don't miss this who despite what he does to the church and despite his approving of what happens to Stephen is still radically saved on the road to Damascus when he encounters the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he is used by God with much suffering to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He's used by God to write the majority of the New Testament 
Saul, who would become Paul, would still be used by God in great ways, but that still doesn't dismiss what's happening here in this moment. He stands by and he's approving of what takes place. Let me just, let me just interject something here. You'll, we'll hit on this point more and more as we get into the new year. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think you've done that is so horrendous against God. He can and still will use you if you will repent and walk in obedience to him. I don't care how big you think your sin is or how little you think it is, how much worthy you think you are to be loved by God or how little you think you are to even be acknowledged by him. But if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, no matter what you have done, you can still be used by God for incredible things for his glory. I dare say many of us in this place right now can give testimony to that. Because I know you. I've seen God do it in your life. 59 and 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he called out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. As the stoning is taking place, imagine that. As the stoning is taking place, he cries out to Jesus to receive his spirit. And then he cries out on behalf of the ones who are killing him. We see something very similar again between Stephen's life and Jesus' life. Jesus, as he's nailed to the cross and he's hung, Luke tells us in 23 of his book, chapter 23, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Jesus, a little bit later, one of his seven sayings from the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. This Christ-like example that we have of Stephen for us to see here in 2021 we, we see this beautiful example to where he acknowledges, Jesus, receive my spirit. And before he dies, he asks for the forgiveness of those who have murdered him. What a selfless response of Stephen. He's being killed, yet he doesn't speak a word of anger or hate towards the people. Instead, he asks the Lord to forgive the very people who are killing him. The stones are flying at him. You have to imagine they're not quiet. The stones are being picked up and the people are still screaming at him over and over and over. And he's getting blow after blow after blow and he falls to his knees. And he looks up and he says, Jesus, receive my spirit. He doesn't just stop. He says, please do not hold this against them. That is a powerful example of forgiveness 
Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount even said in 543 and 44, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Stephen, after giving his defense, he has got his enemies before him. They are hurling stones at him. They are killing him. And even in that moment, he loves them enough to say, just as Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Asking a prayer of forgiveness. Only the people of God who have experienced true forgiveness from God through the finished work of Jesus can offer that kind of forgiveness. Which brings me to another quick aside. Church family, if you have somebody in your life that has wronged you, and I know there are different degrees of wronging, things have been, you don't understand, it was this bad or it was this bad. Hear me, coming from the word of God. If there is an enemy that has done something against you, despite what it is, Remember the fact that you have been forgiven for your sin that sent Jesus to the cross and offer forgiveness to that person. I don't want you to miss what Stephen's prayer means for what happens through the rest of Acts. Because as Stephen says, do not hold this against those that are doing this to me. You have to remember who is standing there checking coats and giving approval to what's happening. It's Saul. And we know from Scripture that he's at least one of the people that are there doing this to Stephen where God answers Stephen's prayer. God doesn't hold it against Saul. Rather, God radically saves Saul and knew Paul goes out, suffers much for the name of Jesus, but he does so for the fact of making the name of Jesus known. The very last thing we saw was at the first part of verse 8, Saul approved of his execution. Saul approved of his execution. But as I said a moment ago, we know from God's word that God radically transformed Saul and he does a powerful work through him. We've got to stay rooted in the gospel because the gospel is countercultural. See, in a moment like that where they're hurling the stones at Stephen, the culture would tell us, how dare you even think about forgiving them for what they're doing to you? Hold the grudge. Retaliate. Yet Stephen does the same thing that Jesus did. Ask for the forgiveness of those who are killing him. And then cries out for Jesus to receive his spirit. I've read this account several times throughout my journey of being a follower of Jesus. But I've got to tell you, this passage has never hit me in a way like it has this week prepping for this message. It could be in part because of the culture we live in today and what we're being told to do that is completely opposite of the gospel. 
It could be the reality that we hear all too frequently of martyrs that are dying left and right because of the devices that we have that can give us news just like that. Regardless, I've been so burdened. And I've asked God on your behalf, and if you don't like it, come talk to me later. I've asked God on your behalf, on my behalf, on Walter's behalf, on our deacon's behalf, that we would live lives that are bold like Stephen. That we would count the cost of discipleship and that we would be a church that's on mission like never before. This morning I was sitting in my office and I knelt down by the little couch in there and I was praying and I, I asked the Lord, I said, Father, you have done incredible things through 75 years of ministry in this church. There's been amazing highs, there's been a, a, horrible lows at times, but you've been constant. You've kept this church going, you've kept it moving. And I've asked the Lord to do what he says in Ephesians 3.20, that he would do something that in a way would leave us just in awe to the point that we would see him do something that would just leave us saying, wow, because he can do anything far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. And I'm begging him to do that on your behalf and on my behalf so that our lost friends, family, and neighbors and coworkers would encounter the risen Jesus that it would leave us all to the point to where we want to fall on our knees in awe of God. So I pray that you and I would have the boldness of Stephen. I pray that you and I would walk in obedience to God in ways like we've never done before. I pray that you and I would not be selfish, but we would be selfless. And that we would truly, as we say, little, fun little saying, that we would give God a blank check and say, do what you want. And that's not me talking about giving. That's just saying a blank check with your life, saying, here it is. Here am I. Here's my hands. Send me. Use me. Do what you want. I pray that's your heart's desire. Before the band comes up to sing us out with this last song, I want us to go into a moment of prayer, quiet reflection. And ask God, what is he saying to us? What's he asking us to do? Uh, it could be different for each and every one of us. As you pray, and as you pray throughout your daily lives, when you pray Luke 10 to and, and, and at other points of the day, I ask that you pray that we would, as leadership, continue to follow God's vision for what he has for us. I pray that you would pray that each and every one of us would be everyday missionaries on mission for God. That we would welcome the difficult conversations and that we would obediently follow the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly gave up his life for us. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, Lord, have your way. Lord, thinking through this passage, thinking through what you're doing in the life of our church and in our community, Lord, that's all that I feel led to say is have your way. I pray over every person in the sound of my voice. Father, that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to be bold, to start conversations with neighbors that we've never met, to have conversations with coworkers, to have conversations with neighbors that we've been friends with forever, that we know are lost. Lord, just give us the boldness to start a conversation. Help us to see, Lord, that you're moving and working in that situation and give us the boldness to speak. You've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. You've promised us, Lord, that you would give us the words to speak. I pray, God, that we are obedient to you. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. If it wasn't for what you have done, Lord, we would be separated from you for eternity. But thanks be to God, Lord, you loved us enough that you had a plan in place. Your one and only begotten son, whose precious blood was poured out on our behalf as your wrath poured out on him. We honor you. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.